Welcome to Business Books and Company. Every month, we read the best business books. Read with us so you can become a better investor, manager, or entrepreneur. This month, we read the autobiography of Lee Iacocca. Lee Iacocca was responsible for the introduction of iconic Ford products like the Mustang and Thunderbird. He rose in the ranks to become president, second only to Henry Ford II. As CEO of Chrysler during the early 1980s, he saved the company from bankruptcy and introduced the minivan. He was one of the biggest celebrity executives during the Reagan era. In his autobiography, he recounts his life's journey from the son of Italian immigrants to the height of the business world. But before we get into the book, let's introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm David Short. I'm a product manager and former consultant. My name is Molson Hart. I have a toy company and a litigation financing firm. Molson, David, uh, this was a really interesting book to read, but let's start with the author. Who was Lee Iacocca? So Lido Lee Iacocca, as you already mentioned, was the son of Italian immigrants. He was born in 1924 and grew up in Allentown, Pennsylvania. His father had a lot of sort of odd jobs. Uh, he he'd immigrated to the U.S. alone. Once he earned enough money to be able to bring his mother over, he went back to Italy and he met his wife at that point. So she came over with his mother. And then he had a hot dog stand. He had a, a couple restaurants. He had a rental car company. And actually, with the rental car company, he had a fleet of 30 Fords, which was one of the things that got Lee originally interested in the automobile industry. So Lee was always a hustler. He you know, carried groceries home for people in his little red wagon from you know very young age. He had a job at a fruit market in high school. Uh, and a friend of his dad's had uh, a Ford dealership and convinced him at 15 that that was the business for him. So he was not required to go to World War II because he was, a, he was 4F due to rheumatic fever. And so while his classmates uh, went off to war, he attended Lehigh. He received offers from Ford and Princeton for grad school, and Ford ultimately agreed to hold his position while he got his master's. He ran into some problems with that, but ultimately did begin working at Ford in 1946 in a student engineering program, uh, which was like a rotational program through the whole cycle of manufacturing. But he really hated the engineering. And so halfway through the program, he asked to move to sales um, where he saw the action. And so they said, you got to convince someone to hire you, but, you know, go for it. And so he ultimately tried in New York and failed and then did get a entry level sales position back home in Pennsylvania. So from, you know, those sort of very, you know, coming in at the bottom position, he managed to work his way up to become president of Ford in 1970, uh, notably launching the Mustang and the Pinto. He was fired in 1978 by Henry Ford Jr. or Henry Ford II, um, who was actually the, the grandson of, of Henry Ford. And then he became president, CEO, and chairman of Chrysler uh, from 1978 to 1992. Ultimately, he died in July of 2019. I do want to zero in on one part of his early life. So he, you mentioned that he didn't serve in World War II. What was he doing instead? And how did his time in college and graduate school kind of lead him into Ford? Yeah, so he was studying engineering. And so he you know, Ford was his dream job. And so, you know, that was kind of like his plan through college and then grad school. So it was, it was, you know, engineering degrees, which got him in the door, but then ultimately it was not actually where he, you know, stuck around. He he quickly shifted away from the engineering side of things, but he did have that sort of fundamental mechanical understanding from his academic background. And he went to top colleges, both for undergrad and grad, right? So he was at Lehigh uh, for undergrad and then at Princeton for for grad school. I don't know, you know, I think for engineering programs, those are both uh, pretty good, but I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not totally aware of the, the 1940s engineering schools. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he, it sounded like he felt a little bit of guilt uh, for not serving in the war. 
I, I think he carried that with him a little bit the rest of his life. That was the impression I got in the biography. Did you feel the same way? Yeah, I, I think he explicitly talks about it. You know, the um, people who you know stayed behind feeling like, you know, they're not able to help their country and, you know, how important America is to him. And he's, you know, very patriotic throughout the book. So I'm sure it was like a, a big, uh, you know, disappointment for him, although, you know, a lot of people died. So obviously he felt lucky that he you know didn't as well. So you mentioned a little bit about his career going through the ranks at Ford, but but what kind of took him from competent person in, in the workforce to leading manager? Like what, what were the actions he took while he was going through the ranks that, that took him to the next level? So I think the Mustang was his real sort of breakout moment where probably, you know, Henry Ford II knew who he was at that point. So it was a pretty interesting story. I don't remember all the details, so feel free to, to add add some after I, I go through it a little bit. But basically, um, he saw an opportunity for a fast, sexy car that would, you know, make the Ford brand popular with, you know, younger people. And he also came up with the idea of, or maybe it wasn't his idea. I think GM did this as well, but he recycled the sort of base from a different car. I forget what it was, but so that cut the production cost in, you know, dramatically. I don't remember what the numbers are, but I think it was literally, you know, less than half the cost to produce the Mustang is, you know, creating a new car from scratch because they were, you know, reusing the chassis. And so with those two things together, it, you know, it then sold incredibly well. And so, you know, obviously, you know, with whatever Mustangs are still, you know, popular cars to this day. And that really was his first, you know, hitting it out of the ballpark method. But he does kind of talk about, you know, I, I was a, you know, whatever, 10 year overnight success that he'd been working, you know, very diligently and hard and moving his his way up for 10 years before he was able to, you know, do that. And he has a lot of like specific, you know, practices for how to be a good manager and whatnot that I, that I found, you know, quite interesting. But yeah, I think the, the Mustang was the big thing that, that launched him into, I think he then became the, the president of Ford, but not the whole company, just like, or, you know, the GM of, of just Ford versus, you know, Lincoln and Mercury had, had other, you know, heads. And then, you know, again, continued to, to rise in the ranks as he came up with, you know, sort of innovative ideas in the, in the industry and, you know, selling a lot of cars. Yeah, and I think we have to put ourselves back in the context of the 1960s where people were car crazy and there was this race between the big three, but especially between Ford and GM that I think for people today is almost reminiscent of Apple versus Google. Uh, people were just crazy about when these new, new phones come out today, right? And people were crazy about when new cars came out. And it sounds like the, the kind of excitement around muscle cars and the, the race between the two companies to make the sexier more powerful car uh, would really drive people to anticipate these new models with the same kind of fervor that we hear today about people like camping out of Apple stores and things like that. Uh, so it's, it's, it's important to put ourselves, I think, back in the context of it wasn't just a vehicle to go from point A to point B. It was the, the status symbol of the day was it was having one of these muscle cars. Yeah, absolutely. And he also seemed to have been a very good marketer as well. So he came up with, I, I don't, again, I'm not going to remember all the details of all these things, but he came up with a lot of different, you know, innovative ways to try and sell things. So with Mustangs, I think they had some kind of a financing plan that was like the 666 plan or something. I, I don't remember what the dicks for 56. Yeah. 56 uh, in 1956, you could, I forget how much money you had to put down, but uh, after that you could, and I think, well, I guess it wasn't a high interest rate in 1956, but you could pay uh, monthly payments of $56 a month to buy the car. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, that was uh, pretty novel in the industry at that time. Yeah. And later on, he also 
when interest rates were really crazy in the um, the 70s, he implemented a policy where you'd get a rebate based off of how the interest rates rose. So basically, like sort of locked in a, you know, I forget what it was, but like a, effectively a, a 15% interest rate or something. And so when interest rates re- did go up above that, yes, you had to pay that, but then Ford rebated you back to, to where you were. Maybe this might have been a Chrysler, actually. I think, I think this was Chrysler. And so, yeah, he, he he came up with interesting ways to sort of make cars more accessible to Americans and, you know, had an incredible amount of success with, especially with, uh, you know, turning around Chrysler through the, the you know, crisis and bailout. So the corporate structure at the time at Ford, as it is at many companies, was that the president was kind of actually the number two to the CEO. And the CEO at the time, as you mentioned before, was Henry Ford II, the grandson of the original Henry Ford, somebody who had actually ended up leading Ford for decades and decades and would end up leading Ford, as we'll get to, beyond when Iacocca is there. So what were the conflicts that arose between Iacocca as president of Ford and Henry Ford II as CEO of Ford? What, why did they end up at loggerheads? So he tells a lot of different stories, uh, but I think fundamentally it was just about Henry Ford wanted his son to become the you know head of Ford after he left. And he felt like Iacocca was a fundamental threat that he would become CEO when Henry Ford II retired instead, and that that was the real reason that he pushed him out. Um, so, I mean, Ford was a very lavish spender, so Iacocca, you know, didn't like that, but I don't think he really did anything because he's the CEO. Um, but he, you know, uh, apparently, you know, got sued by the IRS and whatnot and did end up having to pay, you know, some some amount of money. Um, but he would, you know, fly private for, you know, his vacations, take the, you know, take the Ford planes to send them to Europe to bring him back fancy wine. He just, you know, did, you know, crazy, ridiculous expenses that, you know, had nothing to do with really building the company. And it was a public company at the time. So, you know, he was still treating it like it was his own personal piggy bank. And so Iacocca didn't like that. Ford actually tried to investigate Iacocca for, you know, expense mismanagement and whatnot and completely failed there. So apparently, you know, someone was, you know, following him. He had private eyes investigating him and looking into all his expenses and whatnot. And ultimately, Ford wasn't able to find any real evidence of any reason to fire Iacocca. He literally just kind of did it. He just said he fired him because he he wanted to. (laughs) Yeah. And I think we need to put in the context that Ford is a family company. And even to this day, some of its largest shareholders are members of the Ford family, right? So there was this expectation in Henry Ford II that their family would always be in charge of the company. And then the corporate culture at the time was just lavish, right? And this was probably true at other corporations too, but they were being served literally on a silver platter, their lunches each day in the executive dining room, having people cater to their every need, having entertainment put on just for the executives on a regular basis. It was like, we, we hear about these kind of things today, of course, in corporations, but this was just seemed a whole other level of the kind of haves and have nots within the company, the way that executives were treated versus let's say, mid-level managers. So it was um, really a, I guess, uh, I don't know how you'd put it, but but a culture that was almost too rich for a downturn. But then a downturn did happen, right? So, so what happened that kind of led to problems at Ford? There were a number of things, but honestly, Ford was still doing well when he left. So it was really, you know, there was an economic crisis, there was an oil crisis, and so all of the you know auto companies struggled a lot. Chrysler actually struggled the most, though. So 
when Iacocca left, I think the the year before he left, they you know Ford had made two billion dollars, and then I think within a couple of years they were you know losing hundreds of millions of dollars every year, and so you know all of that was you know demand right. So the the Japanese small cars were becoming more popular with people as you know oil prices had spiked, and you know also there was just an economic crisis, so people just weren't buying cars in general. So you know the whole industry was going down. The Japanese were taking greater share. And both Ford and Chrysler were not particularly well prepared for the new kinds of vehicles that Americans really wanted, the smaller, more fuel efficient vehicles. And the, you know, Japanese, he he criticizes uh, Japan quite a lot in the book. And I don't know more than sort of what I read in it, but uh, it seems like from his perspective, one, uh, Japan was manipulating their currency. So the cost of the cars was artificially lower than it should have been just based off of that. And then also there were some trade policies that the Japanese government did that basically further drove the prices down for the Japanese cars relative to, you know, the American cars. And so, you know, it was, you know, whatever, a couple thousand extra dollars cheaper from, you know, his calculations between these uh, various different government programs of currency manipulation and, you know, rebates on the the cars that were shipping to America. So I think, yeah, those are sort of the, the key things. Were there, were there other things that you think were, you know, leading to the struggles of the big three? So he says that when he first took over Chrysler, Chrysler's biggest creditor or the company to which Chrysler owed the most money was actually Blue Cross Blue Shield. And that he was saying that the problem with union labor wasn't so much the wages as it was the fringe benefits and the pensions and the healthcare costs associated with employing those union guys were astronomical. And I, I think that contributed because I, you know, as far as I know, both Ford, Ford, Chrysler, and GM all employ union labor. I don't know what the situation is in Japan, but I suspect that uh, with nationalized healthcare and stuff like that over there, it's not as onerous for them to employ the people who make their cars. He also complained about the early retirement, that the retirement age at the time was 30 years from when you started. So if you started working at Ford or Chrysler at age 20, you could literally be retiring at age 50 with with your pension. And then what happened is over time, because of this, there were too many people on pension versus the number of people that were still working to pay into the pensions. Yeah. He talks a lot about both of those things. So one is the healthcare costs. And he, he keeps talking about how it's like, I don't know, $600 for every car they sell is you know paying for, for healthcare. And two, yeah, is, is those other union benefits. And yeah, Molson, you're right. The Japanese did not have union labor, so their labor costs were significantly lower, and they certainly didn't have the uh, the medical expenses as well. And we should just put this in all in historical context. So he was at Ford for actually a long time. He wasn't a flash in the pan. He was there for decades in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And then he makes the transition over from Ford to Chrysler. I think it was 1979. So let's talk about that transition. How did he go about leaving Ford and how did Chrysler end up picking him up? Yeah, so Henry Ford fired him, but when he did, it was with this stipulation that he could stick around for, I think it was another like three or six months in order to hit his pension. <laughs> so he, he, he would, uh, it's funny that he complained so much about the pensions and then ultimately he did get his full, uh, his Ford pension as well. Although I think ultimately he probably didn't get that because he then went to Chrysler. And so Chrysler uh, I think gave him like a million dollar bonus when he joined that was basically paying off the pension from Ford that he was going to forgo by taking the role at Chrysler. And so it was, I think, literally like within weeks of when he officially left Ford that he became 
the president of Chrysler. I think it was for like maybe eight months or something. He was just the president. And then he took over as CEO. And I think another year later, he became chairman as well. But he was very cautious about, you know, uh, meeting with with everyone on this. It was sort of like a sleuthy part of the story where they're, you know, going to hotels and meeting, you know, secretly with the various, you know, leadership people and members of the board at Chrysler in order to demonstrate what it is that, you know, he thought he could add value with. And although ultimately it seems like he knew very little about the actual situation that Chrysler was in because they very quickly needed to be bailed out. Yeah, absolutely. And so then he goes to Chrysler. He he knew Chrysler was in a bad situation, but he didn't know just how bad. How bad was it? Didn't he have to fire something like 80 to 90 percent of the management that was in place? That wasn't his original intention. He wanted to keep people in place, but he found that like morale was totally shot and a lot of people were in positions that they weren't able to do. And so he, he ended up bringing in his own people. Yeah, he brought over some executives from Ford. And you're right. He, he said that there was something like 35 vice presidents, if I remember correctly, in, in Chrysler at the time. And within the next two years since he took over, he had to get rid of, I think, like you said, 80 to 90 percent of those vice presidents. So he totally cleaned house. And he also had to take some extreme actions to try to save the company financially. What were some of those actions? Yeah. So when he came in, he said the real problem was that they like literally just didn't even really have accounting. They didn't understand what, you know, whether particular factories were profitable or not. Like it was really just there weren't sort of traditional financial systems in place at the company. So they literally just didn't even have the data to know how bad things were. He ultimately had to lay off a significant number of employees when they went through the uh, the bailout. They had already, I believe, taken uh, like I think he was taking you know one dollar in salary. I think all of the executives took you know significant pay cuts, and even the unions had also agreed to take pay cuts. But then I think with part of the bailout, they had to go further still uh, and take additional pay cuts while the government lent them the money, and they had to get all of the banks to agree unanimously across. I, I, for, I forget what it was. It was like you know hundreds of different banks across the world that had lent Chrysler some amount of money, and they all had to take you know twenty five percent cut in order to get this this government bailout and. That story was really fascinating because they were talking about just the the literal paperwork. It's like so many different documents to agree to all this. And they were all in the law offices of, I forget, I think it was it was Sherman and Sterling and Debevoise and Plimpton, and I forget which one was which, but they started at one of them and literally the building caught on fire while they were trying to fill out all this paperwork. And so they had to evacuate because of the fire. And then they, they literally had to like get the police and fire to let them come in take all the documents from the one building over to another building uh, to then you know, t- from the one law firm to the other law firm to then, you know, f- finalize, have everyone agree that all the documents were there and signed. And like, basically, if that hadn't happened, the company was going to fail. They really needed to, you know, get all of that done very rapidly at that point. So anyway, it was a, it was a really crazy story that n- nearly all the paperwork got burned up, actually. And there was a lot of politicking to get that bailout from the government. So what were Lee's like politics? How did he push this through the the Congress and and actually get this huge bailout? Yeah. So he talks about being very free market and then it just seems like that's a complete like sham. So I think that's one thing that I'll like really push back on in this. Like he's very self-serving in this book ultimately where like, oh, you know, I believe in capitalism and picking yourself up by your bootstraps, but I also don't believe in, you know, firing 100,000 people or whatever. But he did also fire, you know, tens of thousands of people. And he did get bailed out. And his big argument is that, like, if 
Chrysler went bankrupt, then it would just completely fail. Everyone would, you know, not only would all the Chrysler people lose their jobs, but all their suppliers would lose their jobs. And so it was, you know, like a million people or something that are sort of supported by the company and it becomes really important. And, you know, so this is this is a good use of government money to, to save all these jobs. But Chrysler did go bankrupt multiple times since then. And so he's just completely <laughs> wrong, right? Like, I mean, his, yeah. his, his theory made some sense, right? That people wouldn't trust the warranty and so they wouldn't buy the cars if they hear that the company's bankrupt. But like, it just has, you know, it has been tested and factually he was wrong. The company was able to, you know, it went bankrupt. So equity share, shareholders lost everything, but the, you know, the company survived. Most of the jobs, you know, continued. And so, I mean, he just, he's just wrong. But the counterfactual could be that people just now, because that started setting a pattern of the company will get bailed out if anything goes wrong. People are like, well, I don't have to worry about my warranty because if the company doesn't do well, the government will just bail them out. Yeah, that's a decent point. So, yeah, you're right. It might be a change in the human perspective or whatever on it as well that we just assume that the auto industry is going to keep getting bailed out. So we'll trust them even if they do go bankrupt. I agree with you that he's very self-serving. So I think he literally says at one point in the book that he's basically a Republican when times are good and a Democrat when times are bad. And that's that's um, I think a lot of people actually feel that way in America. But at the same time, he does a lot of rah-rah, you know, about what a big capitalist he is. And then he is basically the biggest proponent of bailouts in the history of I don't know, maybe the company, the country at that point since the Great Depression, maybe. Yeah. And he does make a big point about how how many government loan guarantees are are done and that, you know, there was already whatever, I forget what the numbers are, but you know, they they got a billion dollars and, you know, there was already two hundred and nine billion in government loan guarantees at the time, and those do all kinds of things for other people, you know, when the steel industry got bailed out, you know, no one complained or whatever, but it seemed like he did complain. He, like, he complained about the other bailouts and then he needed yeah. one. And he, I think he does like acknowledge that it's, you know, hypocritical, but then he kind of just like plows ahead with this, like, I don't know that the whole like last part of the, the book, I forget what the sections are called, but you know, there's like the Ford story and then the Chrysler story. And it's like his plan for America. And it's just, I, I don't know. I really didn't like, I, I loved the first three sections of the book on, you know, his life, his time at Ford, his time at Chrysler. But the final section, it just seems like he really wants the government to, you know, bail out the auto industry all over again and start, you know, restricting trade with Japan and whatnot. And it just seemed like, I don't know, he, he talks a good game about free markets and whatnot, and then just completely wants his industry to be supported by the government. But he also argues that Japan gets a bunch of unfair advantages from their own government between like currency manipulation and then uh, MTI. MITI, which supports industries, uh, their industries in a bunch of different ways. So in a sense, that kind of makes uh, his claims for government support a little bit more reasonable. Another question about that. So his request for a bailout needs to be kind of viewed in the context of kind of the bar. You know, isn't that his job in a sense, like newly hired by the board, which should make, which should consist of equity and like the people who are the shareholders in Chrysler who don't want their equity to go to zero. And then I, in a way, I'm I'm not a huge fan of bailouts, but I'm a little bit more sympathetic to those ideas. If you're not the cause of the bailout, right? He like essentially inherited a failing firm. Was there anything he could have done in between him getting hired and his bailout that could have, you know, saved the company? I I think you make really great points, Molson. I think those are both really great points. And and I agree with you that 
it's very to call it. I can't quite go and say that he's a hypocrite because that was his job. Like it wasn't like he was a private citizen that one day was against bailouts and then the next day was for bailouts. As the CEO of Chrysler, he had to save the company. That is his number one responsibility, obviously. And the best path forward to save the company was to beg the government for money. So, of course, if that if you have the hundreds of thousands of people who work for the dealerships, work for the company itself, and all the suppliers and everything on your shoulders, you have a responsibility to all those people to try to save their jobs. And so there's nothing... I, I wouldn't go as far as to call him hypocritical for, for having to, to save it, but it is very ironic that he had to go and beg the government when he had been against bailouts before. I think the other big point he raises is the regulation of the industry itself too. So all of the like safety and uh, fuel efficiency requirements that the government required uh, created a lot of additional cost for the companies. And it put GM in a much stronger position because each company had to do the same R&D to develop these these new technologies that the government was requiring, but they could spread it out over a lot more car sales. So it just like inherently, you know, under hurt the smaller of the big three companies more than it did, you know, the, the biggest. So, you know, I think that is a more interesting idea. One, I, th- I think, Molson, your point about uh, the Japanese government's actions and, you know, some amount of response there. I think I tend to be more promote free trade regardless of what, you know, other company, other countries might be doing, uh, you know, adding tariffs and, you know, restricting trade from other countries just because they're doing something bad to you. I don't know. Like, it, I, I could be convinced. I'm not like 100% certain about it. I actually went to a, a, a debate uh, on this exact topic where I did... Uh, you know, feel more convinced by the guy who said that, you know, we shouldn't just unilaterally drop all of our trade restrictions. We should instead do them tit for tat and use, you know, our own terms to, you know, decrease our tariffs and, you know, get the same thing back from China and whatnot. So, you know, there's there's some argument for that, that the negotiating tactics and, you know, the ability of the government to get the other governments to act better by, you know, taking retaliatory action can potentially work out. But in general, I just think we're, we're better off allowing for, you know, open and free trade. What were your main like takeaways from this book that you want that you hope to apply in your own life? Like, what was something that you learned from Lee Iacocca that you want to start doing going forward? So he actually gave a lot of like very tactical management techniques that I thought were pretty good. I'm, a lot of companies do them, I think, now anyway. But at the time, I think they were relatively revolutionary. So one is a quarterly review of all of your managers. So you know, er, during that, they actually write their own review. They give the commitment that they're going to go after in the next three months and, you know, potentially longer term vision as well. And then, you know, after another three months, you're then comparing that you see, like, did you do what you said you were going to do? If so, great. If not, like, why not? And, you know, what are are you planning for for the future? So, I mean, I I think I have been in places with review systems, but quarterly is a little bit more frequently than I've, I've ever really had to do it. But I think it's probably about the right cadence that, you know, you do need to reflect on how if you, if you do too long of a timeline on people's, you know, measurement, it's, it's easy to kind of like slip through with, you know, one or two good months out of six. And then an, another one that he talked a lot about was he, that he worked really hard, but he took weekends off. Um, and so I thought that was an interesting thing that like, even as, you know, CEO of Chrysler and whatnot, like, Saturday, you know, Friday night, Saturday and Sunday, he was like with his family. He did not, you know, do work over the weekends. He really did like, you know, create that boundary for himself that, you know, he might be working late on the weekdays and whatnot, but he was going to still be committed to his family and find time for that in some of the most high stress and intense jobs that, you know, anyone's ever had. I take away that he was a great product person 
And I really admire a lot of the people in the computer industry who are great product people. But his hits with the Mustang and the minivan, it wasn't like he was like a one-hit wonder. There was also the Thunderbird in there as well. He really understood the business at a fundamental level and what consumers want. And he was a good marketer on top of that to then show them why they wanted the things that they were building. So he, he says that you can't, you can't save a company without good products, right? He says that's, that's fundamental. And I think that's absolutely true. And I think there's too many people who try to save companies just from a financial perspective that don't look at the fundamentals of the product mix. And uh, I was impressed with how he really looked at every aspect of the business at each of the stations that he was at at Ford and then, then later at Chrysler. Correct me if I'm wrong, but he was a big proponent of not using intuition for the selection and design of new products, but instead things needed to be justified through pretty in-depth marketing analysis. Yeah, first, correct me if I'm wrong on that. But secondly, what would Steve Jobs make of Lee Iacocca's kind of like product selection and approach? Well, I, I think that he, like Steve Jobs, brought products to market that people didn't necessarily yet know they wanted. Um, and maybe that was based more on product research than Steve Jobs' kind of intuition. But he certainly, uh, like the book we're going to read next month, went from zero to one. So brought in new categories that, that just didn't exist. So the minivan was, was a new concept. Like it, it was not a thing that you could, people would have come to you and said, hey, I want a minivan because there was no such thing as a minivan. So I, I think that he, you can come to a new product from market research or from intuition, but stepping out on a limb and doing something totally different, I think, does take courage. And I'll just add to that that I think they were kind of like cowboys in terms of market research before the 60s and 70s. And so him bringing in that discipline, it might not be what we think about today as being as data-driven as, as we would use a statistician to do today. But it was more just bringing in some discipline and some kind of statistics, some kind of market research beyond the kind of cowboy mentality that they had before that, which actually I think is a good segue into something he did at Chrysler, which was redoing their inventory system. So one of the big problems when he came to Chrysler was that they were just building tons of cars without looking at the actual demand for each of the different types of vehicles. So they didn't actually say, oh, we need this many trucks. We need this many small cars. They made guesses about how many they needed. And then they tried to push them out into the dealers. And that led to a huge inventory backlog back at Chrysler headquarters, where I think they said they literally had just parking lots and parking lots and parking lots going on for miles and miles and miles of unsold inventory. And so he switched over to just-in-time uh, manufacturing when, when he took over Chrysler. And that was one of the big components beyond the bailout that helped turn around the company. But was so, it just-in-time? Because uh, yeah. I think, like, seriously, he wasn't keeping any inventory at all. Because I, I typically think of something... When I think of that, I think of... That being learned from Japanese firms during the eighties, right? And yeah, I mean, I it, to me, it almost seems like perhaps he did a better job of forecasting. So much as he removed inventory from the system altogether, and a, a lot of just in time is like being able to literally switch the the mold for chassis one to chassis two, just like not even overnight, but just like within the same within minutes, like literally. So. Is that actually what he implemented? So 
he calls it just in time in the book. I don't know that it would, by your standard, be just in time, but it was certainly a radical departure from what Chrysler was doing before. Yeah, the way he talks about it is that all the dealers knew that like the last Friday of the month or whatever, they were going to get, you know, these crazy deals because of all the crazy inventory buildups that were that were happening. And so no one would buy anything until they then offered them for, you know, 10 percent less than they're supposed to. And so it was like a huge problem. And the dealers really, you know, hated it or hated when he was trying to change things because it was a big part of like how they were profitable was that they were they were getting the cars for a lot cheaper than they were supposed to because of all these backlogs. Um, and he said that, yeah, it, it it did become like month to month. They were, you know, doing basically they flipped it on its head from before it was manufacturing was figuring out what they wanted to produce and like just producing based off of their own ideas. And instead, it flipped to sales had actually sold the car to a dealer before they were producing it. So it really was no inventory. I think another takeaway I have from this book is how even what seem like large, responsible corporations can just have totally broken processes in place. Like he comes to Chrysler and they literally don't know how to do accounting, according to him, at least. They, they literally don't know how to do planning about how much of each vehicle to produce. I mean, that's crazy that a company that can have that many managers and that, me- that much success can actually not have in place proper systems. And so I, I think systematic thinking is so important, whether you're at a small level or at a high level. And the fact that nobody like actually was able to put those systems in place over many years before Iacocca gets there is almost hard to believe. But then, you know, we've seen not to, to make this like too much about today, but we see how systems aren't in place in our own federal governments, which, you know, a lot of us thought would be in place in, in a serious situation like we're dealing with the pandemic crisis. And this is kind of reminiscent. You're like just wondering, like, how can they be so asleep at the wheel? How can such a large organization not have better processes in place? So how did Iacocca go about turning around Chrysler beyond just the bailout and the inventory system? There, there were some other changes he made beyond that. What, what were they? So Iacocca adopted a $1 a year salary. He spent a ton of time in the plants. And then he also uh, spent, a, he appeared in, in the commercials for Chrysler. And to me, this is, it, it was very consistent with this idea that he, he felt a tremendous amount of regret for not being able to go to World War II because he was kind of like making sacrifices and in a economic car industry sense, you know, he was like on the front lines of the war as much as, you know, the CEO can be. And I obviously, right. Well, not necessarily obviously, but that is probably pretty important for the overall morale. Another thing that he did is that GM's uh, workers were paid more than Chrysler. And I think he motivated the staff by saying like, hey, once we get through this, like we'll achieve like a salary parity between GM and Chrysler. And that's obviously quite motivating, you know, just telling everybody, hey, you're all going to get a raise if we can get through this. Yeah, I love that. So he was kind of like a cheerleader for the company, both publicly and internally, even during this time where they had to do massive layoffs and both at the executive level and also at the individual worker level. So he he acted as somebody who was a point of morale boost for everybody, even when he had to make these difficult decisions that were really very unfortunate for a lot of people. So at the end of the book, he starts getting into politics. There's even a chapter called Making America Great Again. I believe that's chapter 28. And if you read the chapter, 
It's kind of like right out of Donald Trump's playbook, some of the policy ideas in there. What are Iacocca's political ambitions during the 1980s and what were his political ideas? So one of the things that Iacocca wanted to do is create a critical industries commission. And he felt that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that the auto industry was definitely one of those. Uh, That, in a way, feels quite prescient today in 2020, given that we have uh, no medical supply chain. Yeah, the other thing that he focuses on a lot is the federal deficit. So he talked a lot about how uh, the deficit was now $200 billion and, you know, it was growing. We're going to have a trillion dollar debt soon. And so he believed that the president should go on TV and announce that he's going to cut the federal deficit in half. And, that you know, that would be the greatest investment binge in history. You know, everyone would be super excited. And so he said, I forget the exact details of how he would do it, but basically it was like a big cut in military spending the Democrats have to find a way to cut social programs. So he doesn't specify how they're going to do the cuts, just says they have to. Um, and then he says that they're going to increase taxes on, I think it was gas tax. And I forget, there was some other some other tax in order to, yeah, cut the deficit in half. He, asked, he calls for energy independence, limits on Japanese market share in certain markets. Uh, like David said, uh, restructuring of federal entitlements the training of more scientists, engineers, and technicians, incentives for research and development, rebuilding the nation's infrastructure, and uh, also monetary and fiscal policy. He was a big believer in Japanese currency manipulation. Perhaps he uh, would have liked us, uh, the United States, to counteract that in some way. I mean, a lot of these suggestions are pretty good. It's just uh, the devil's kind of in the details. Like, how do you implement that? Like David said, it's like, oh, yeah, sure. Great. Let's cut the federal deficit in half. How? Yeah. And another thing I want to bring up from the end of the book that's this is kind of miscellaneous, but we talked earlier about how he railed against regulations. And one of the regulations he rails against is airbags in cars. Uh, And I don't know all the science and all the details about this, but certainly it doesn't seem like today airbags are leading to more deaths than they're saving. It seems like at the time there might have been some controversy around that, but he's really pro seatbelt, but really anti airbag. And that seems interesting from a modern context. What was his argument? It, just basically that they weren't That you've safe. got an explosive device in your car. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that they fail all the time. And I, I don't hear about that today so much. I've certainly heard about it before, but perhaps that was true. Maybe, maybe in the 1980s, airbags were failing all the time and killing people. I, I really don't know all the history of that. But in this book, he comes out very strong against airbags and very strong for seatbelts which was interesting. I got burned by my airbag when it deployed. I mean, I don't think that it saved my life in any way and it did burn me. So, you know, they're, they're a minor inconvenience, I think, potentially. I don't know. It's like the whole book. He's like against airbags, but he is a windbag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Molson, you asked us earlier about our takeaways. What were your key takeaways from the book? So... I mean, this is this might be a little bit of confirmation bias, but I think it's hugely important for you to, as the CEO of the company, to do what Iacocca did. Like when you're the general, you need to be on the front lines. You need to be seen in the plant. You, having a one dollar salary when you just got one point five uh, one point five million dollar signing bonus from the board, that's like kind of smart and necessary. You kind of need to give your uh, you need to give yourself some skin in the game. You need to give yourself some downside, not, on, not only monetarily, but also like reputation wise. So when he's uh, appearing in advertisements, he's kind of like staking his reputation on the success of the car that the consumers will buy. 
And that's hugely important. Um, for me, myself, uh, I'm not as proud of our inventory controls and financial accounting within my own companies as I'd like to be. And it was powerful to me seeing him implement those policies and effectively, you know, with government help, of course, turn Chrysler around by having a really, by having a better sense of, you know, what was profitable, what was selling well, what you needed to make more of. I mean, for me, we, one of my companies sells a lot of plush animals and, you know, we, we also have our duds and we have a warehouse and it's his warehouse, you know, this is our warehouse equivalent to that, those parking lots full of cars. I, I don't know. So it, it kind of, it was inspiring at, at the same time as it, it gave me a little bit of anxiety. So I guess my main takeaway would be like, Hey, I have some work to do. I, I don't want that company to be Chrysler. Are there any other key takeaways from the book that we missed or anything else about the book that you want to mention? So there's a couple just like glancing through uh, some notes that I'd taken that I thought were pretty good. Um, he's big on decisiveness as a leader. And I think that is really important that, you know, he he does want to do market research and stuff like that. But like, don't just spend forever in the lab. Do like get enough information to make a decision and then make a decision quickly. Don't just let things, you know, spoil on the uh, you know, on the table. He talks a lot about sort of like heart and that you need people who like really care and that it's actually really hard to to figure it out, even in interviewing that. Um, I, let me see. I have a quote here. There are two really important things about a candidate that you just can't learn from one short job interview. The first is whether he's lazy. And the second is whether he's got any horse sense. There's no qualitative analysis to check out whether he's got fire in his belly or whether he will have savvy or street smarts when it comes to decision time. So I, th- I thought those were good, too. I don't think I think he basically just said it's like kind of your gut and like potentially you meet with people multiple times and get dinner with them and stuff like that to try and figure this stuff out. But that like, you know, it's those those are really important. It is really tough to you know, identify that in your workers. Did he say that you could identify any of those attributes in an interview? He said there are two really important things about a candidate that you just can't learn from one short job interview. Mm, so okay. I you know, try and find it in the book and see, see if he goes into more details on, on how he figures it out. I, I, I think he basically says like, no, it's like basically you have to kind of work with people to really get it. And so it's like it oftentimes you do end up hiring duds and then just having to get rid of them because you do figure out, the, you know, one or the other of those things is not the case. I'll add my own interesting tidbit is that he was really like a huge business celebrity in the 1980s. Like he was right up there with other big 80s business celebrities like Steve Jobs and Donald Trump. And this book itself was a number one New York Times bestseller. In fact, it was like a really well-known about book. I asked my parents about it and yeah, they all knew who Lee Iacocca was and they had seen him on television all the time. This was years ago when my dad was still alive. Like he knew all about Lee Iacocca. So this was he was like a very, very public figure. And I think that his life story really appealed to people, being being the child of Italian immigrants, uh, rising through the ranks, doing battle with Henry Ford II, and then doing these commercials where he seemed to be like a straight talker, giving people guarantees about the vehicles and things like that. He, he really was like a public face of the company and a big celebrity in and of his own right. And I think that having that in a CEO is really a huge asset. So having somebody that people like and is a public face for the company, most companies don't have that. And I I think that probably helped a lot in the turnaround of Chrysler. If I were interviewing Donald Trump, maybe one of the first questions I'd be dying to ask him would be like, tell me about Lee Iacocca. Between like, you know, making America great again and all his industrial policies. 
and kind of like Donald Trump and Iacocca, uh, I think they were both famous like around the same time. Maybe Trump's fame came a little bit earlier. Like, no, that's right. You're absolutely right, Molson. They both had best-selling books, business books, in the just within a couple of years of each other. So, absolutely. And like Trump at that time, you could say always was much more talk, whereas Iacocca was like a combination of talk and walk. And it's just so interesting that he kind of imitated him in, in a whole host of ways. You know, much later adoption of the policies, even like stealing these great like marketing backlines. Yeah, we didn't even get into that. People were pushing Iacocca to run for president in the late 1980s. So, yeah, there's a lot of parallels there, except for that Iacocca was actually like a product person who understood how to make great products. So that, that, that I don't think Donald Trump has that. Can't make tests. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. OK, so what are we going to be reading next month? Yeah, so our next book is going to be Zero to One by Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel was the founder of PayPal, um, an early investor in Facebook, um, created Founders Fund, and yeah, it was largely a, a venture capitalist essentially at this point. The book, Zero to One, is really about building businesses that actually create something entirely new. So the fundamental idea is that like there are lots of businesses that take like something that already exists and they make it a little bit better. But a zero to one company is something that's really like this doesn't exist at all. And you're now creating some like entirely new category. You're building something that really, you know, changes things. And so uh, he talks about, you know, his business experiences and uh, sort of goes into details about, you know, other companies. But basically it's about, you know, how do you build a company that can create, you know, new things? How do you build the next Facebook or SpaceX or, you know, those kinds of things? So um, I read it uh, probably five or so years ago when it when it first came out and I, I really enjoyed it and i'm excited to uh to go through it again awesome awesome so do you guys have anything to plug and how can listeners get in touch with you uh you can follow me on twitter at david g short Yeah, nothing to plug this week besides reading zero to one i'm pretty excited to reread that something like six years later excited for that uh you can find me on twitter molson underscore heart and I forgot to introduce myself at the beginning, but I'm David Kopeck. I'm an assistant professor of computer science. And you can find me on Twitter at Dave Kopeck, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. Thank you so much for joining us again this month. Don't forget to like us on your podcast player of choice. And we look forward to seeing you again next month.